This podcast is brought to you by ReformationSites.com, church websites for a modern Reformation. Hear more at the conclusion of today's program. Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count, with Carl Truman and Todd Pruitt. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Welcome to Mortification of Spin. My name's Carl Truman, Professor of Biblical and Religious Studies at Grove City College in Western Pennsylvania. I'm here as always with my friend of many years, colleague, co-laborer, Todd Pruitt, who is pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Harrisonburg, Virginia, which is a congregation in the PCA, the Presbyterian Church in America. Good to see you again, Todd. Good to see you, Carl. Things going well? Well, Things are going well. Um, I still have a job. As long as I can say that, you know, a job and a wife, a job and a wife. She still speaks to me. So it's all good, right? Karen is a saint. That's all I can say. She's one of the true saints that I've met. (laughs) There's, there's, there's no doubt about it behind every great man. There's a great woman, something like that, right? And even behind relatively mediocre men like us, I think that might that might be true as well. Had it not been for my wife, I would have been a, a dismal failure. As it is, I'm mediocre. And so <laughs> that's worth celebrating. Well, we have a special guest today. This is somebody who has been controversial, who has hit the headlines a few years ago with the book she's written. She's followed it up with another uh, book, the second book I'm not so familiar with. But uh, this uh, is a lady who used to write for Cosmopolitan magazine. I think I'm right in saying, Todd, we have not had (laughs) anybody on this show ever who's ever written for Cosmopolitan. Yeah, I I was just going to say, you know, in a long line of guests that we've had on this program who have written for Cosmopolitan. uh, Yeah, this is a I mean, I feel like we have. Uh, we we have we have a rock. I mean, people need to start showing us the respect we deserve at this point. If if we can get a former uh, freelance writer from Cosmopolitan uh, to get on here and risk her reputation so much, then then we're doing something right. It is, of course, for those of you who are familiar uh, with her work. It is uh, Sue Ellen Browder, who wrote for Cosmopolitan in the nineteen seventies and had, I would say, not just a ringside seat in the 1970s feminist movement, but was actually a player through her work for Cosmopolitan, was a player in the feminist movement, and particularly a player in how the feminist movement and the sexual revolution became very closely identified. Welcome to the program, Sue. It's great to have you on. Thank you. It's good to be here. Now, I was reading an interview with you where it was suggested to you that, that you were an early example of somebody who wrote fake news. <laughs> and and, you, and you, repu- you repudiated the idea of fake news because you felt that it simply wasn't, I, I think I'm right in saying, a potent enough term 
to describe mm. exactly what you were doing at Cosmopolitan. I wonder if for the sake of our listeners who may not be familiar with your work, if you could tell us, what exactly were you doing at Cosmopolitan in the 1970s? And, and why have you come to repudiate it? Uh, that book, Subverted, that you wrote is a very clear rejection and repudiation of your, of your earlier career, if you like. What was it and why did you come to repudiate it? Well, I wrote actually for Cosmo both through the 70s and most of the 1980s. And I had come from a small town in Iowa. I'd gone to the University of Missouri School of Journalism. I learned very well that the people have a right to know. And then I went to New York City. I fell immediately from grace and started writing for Cosmopolitan. And what I found there when I went on staff was that most of those stories about those women jumping into bed with all those men were completely made up. Mm. Helen Gurley Brown, who was the editor of Cosmo at the time, even had a list of rules on how to make up stories about for, for, the, for the magazine. Why? Because in the early 1970s, women weren't just weren't living that sexually free lifestyle. It, had, it hadn't you know, they, were, they weren't doing it. If they were doing it, they certainly weren't talking about it. You couldn't find these women and interview them. So these stories were completely made up. And of course, I was a young woman who was ambitious. I wanted to succeed. And I thought, eh, nobody's going to believe this stuff. Interesting. <laughs> well, of course. Then after, um, I actually, it wasn't until 2003 that I converted to Catholicism, or I actually went back to the church. I had grown up as a, in a congregational church in Iowa, and I went back to the church probably in the mid-1990s um, to the Episcopal Church. And then when I converted to Catholicism in 2003, I suddenly realized all the damage that had done, and I realized I had to come clean and tell what had happened. Sue Ellen, obviously, uh, you know what what your what your story you know it it involves such a such a change of worlds for you going from uh, the women's movement and writing for Cosmopolitan to, to what you've been doing in in these years with some of your latest work. What were what were kind of the major points of departure that 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 shifted you from that world that you were operating in to to where you are now? What were those major or, or a major point of, of departure that you would single out? There were a lot. It was very gradual for a long time. Um, I began to realize that, that the, a lot of the, well, the sexual revolution I knew was a mistake because when we were at Cosmo, we were lying about that. When I was growing up, I had a very wonderful dad, but he did have a philosophy Nothing personal, just business. <laughs> <laughs> he was a, he owned a shoe store, and and I and that was kind of the philosophy I took into Cosmo. Nothing personal, just business. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize that people would actually believe that stuff. And I right. thought it was yeah. a sexual fantasy. I thought it was a sexual fantasy, and it was only after I. Uh, I slowly, slowly, slowly began to see how that sexual revolution had been a big mistake. And it was only after I uh, entered into the Catholic Church in 2003 that I was able to look back and see all the damage that it caused. Hmm. You can't deceive a lot of people and write a bunch of lies without being deceived in some ways yourself. Yeah. 
And during that time, when I was writing for Cosmo, I did have an abortion. And I could not face the fact that that how bad that had been for me, all mm. the anxiety, all the depression that it had caused until after I came into the church and went to confession and, and got rid of that guilt. Yeah. Then I could face the the whole truth about yeah. feminism. Whereas before it was only I could I could say, oh well yeah, it was bad, but but not that abortion part. That abortion part was okay. Right. But but after I after I was healed from that, then I could face that. Mm-hmm. And see a lot of people today, a lot of young women who are out there marching in the streets saying, We gotta have abortion, how many of them have had one? Yeah. Yeah. So it's very sad. It's yeah, very indeed. Yeah. And that yeah, that connects to a a question of mine, uh, you know, when I teach uh, the this sort of stuff at Grove City College, when I teach sort of history of the modern self, and we come to the sexual revolution, it seems to me that the sexual revolution is bad news for women, uh, which some feminists in the late 60s and early 70s seem to understand. When you read the uh, Boston Women's Health Collective's early stuff, they're clear that we don't want to just be sex objects for men with no consequences for them. And yet there does seem to be this incredibly tight connection now in a lot of minds between the sexual revolution, particularly the pill and abortion, and women's freedom. And yet your story speaks strongly against that. Mm. How Mm. would you reflect on that history and what advice would you give to to women, maybe some of the women in my class who they want what I would see as the good things from feminism. They want to be respected. They want to be treated as human beings. They want to have good opportunities in life, but they don't want to buy into the the pro-choice stuff. They don't want to buy into the sex as power. And, yes, sex as yeah. power that, that clearly you found deeply wanting. Yeah. Well, when I was at Cosmo, you see, I was there at, in the, on staff in 1971. And what was very clear to me at that time was the sexual revolution and the women's movement were two radically different movements. Ellen Gurley Brown with her sexual revolution magazine, which was patterned after Playboy, would have loved to have been part of the feminist movement. But Betty Friedan, who had launched the feminist movement with the, her book, The Feminine Mystique, in 1963, called Cosmo, quite obscene and quite horrible. So that was the sexual revolution. That was a feminist, the mother of the feminist movement, who said that the sexual revolution was quite obscene and quite horrible. So how did those two get joined together? Well, again, after I became a Catholic in 2003, people kept asking me, well, how did they get joined together? And I'll be honest with you, I didn't know. And then one friend of mine said, was it abortion? I said, oh, yeah, I think it was. And so we started, I started investigating. And I am a journalist, and I was a well-trained journalist. So I went into the, I got in access to the National Organization for Women's Papers in, Schles- in the Schlesinger Library. Um, you can't get in unless they give you permission. And I, and I wanted to know that there was a night. November 18th, 1967, in the Chinese room of the Mayflower Hotel in Washington, D.C., when about 100 feminists met to draw up the National Organization for Women's first Bill of Rights. 
There were eight rights on that uh, agenda that day, that night. Um, things, most of them were things that we all agree with. Uh, women should not be fired for being pregnant. I was fired for being pregnant in, the, uh, in 1970. People forget this. Women should not be fired for being pregnant. Women should be able to serve on a jury. I mean, in some states, you couldn't serve on a jury. Women, a married woman should be able to um, get credit in her own name. That was, that was illegal at that time. Mm. So these rights were things that all women of my generation agreed on. There were only two rights that night that created a fight. One was the Equal Rights Amendment. And a lot of women did not want that equal rights amendment. Well, that now has been has failed. The other one was the abortion battle. And that went on until almost midnight. It was wild. It's in it's in subverted. If you read nothing but chapter five subverted, you get to go into that Chinese room and see what happened that night. Hmm. People were screaming and yelling at each other. Uh, some people were saying, I'm against murder. I mean, this is the, the founders of the feminist movement saying, I'm against murder. And after that was over, only 57 people, a mere 57 people, voted to insert abortion in the women's movement's demand in their Bill of Rights. And that is the one right in that Bill of Rights that we're still fighting over today. Huh. Not only that, but one third of those ardent feminists walked out and later resigned from now over the abortion vote. One resigned after what she called a shouting match. Hmm. So what we're fighting over here and why I wrote uh, Sex and the Catholic Feminist, I'm saying we're fighting over abortion and we're fighting over the sexual revolution. We're not fighting over feminism, authentic feminism. We're fighting over the sexual revolution. That's what we're fighting over. And that's what you're saying in your book, too. You know? Yeah, that's that's fascinating. So that is very interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah you uh, got to read that chapter. Chapter yeah. five, well, it allows you to go in and live that moment. Yeah. And, and it's an amazing moment. And you say, okay, so why, why did Betty Friedan ram that thing through into that? Uh, well, she was conned by, guess what? A man. Interesting. <laughs> a man named Larry Later, Lawrence Later, who is the co-founder with Dr. Bernard Nathan. I was say, I know that name, yeah. Yes, of NARAL, NARAL mm -hmm. Choice America. Yeah. Uh, he wrote a book called Abortion. He wrote this book in 1966. Now, listen to, listen to the subtitle of this thing. It's called Abortion. It's a masterpiece of propaganda. Mm. Uh, and you said, I said that I don't call it fake news. I don't. I call it propaganda. Yeah. Propaganda is half-truth, limited truth, and truth out of context. It's, it has a lot of truth in it. Mm -hmm. It's that snake in the grass that gets you. And going back to the uh, Chinese room, seven of those rights were, or at least six of them, were okay. Yeah. Only the abortion right and the ERA right were the ones that were the snakes in the grass. Right. But here's Larry, Lawrence Later's book, Abortion, and the subtitle, listen to this subtitle of propaganda itself, the first authoritative and documented report on the laws and practices governing abortion in the U.S. and around the world, and how, for the sake of women everywhere, they can and must be reformed. Hmm. That guy was also Margaret Sanger's biographer, by the way. Wow. Oh, wow. 
So Betty Friedan on the back of it gives it a rave review. So this book helped convince her that somehow women needed abortion to be yeah. free. She didn't, she didn't need abortion to be free. She was in her 40s. She'd had her three children. Mm-hmm. She said motherhood had been for her gel- delicious. Okay, Lawrence later also is cited in Roe v. Wade six or seven times. Mm-hmm. This book, um, this masterpiece of propaganda is cited in Roe v. Wade. You you'd referenced uh, during your work with Cosmopolitan just how you know everybody knew that so many of the stories they were just fabricating. How was that talked about? In other words, you know, was it talked about openly? And and we've you know we've got to write things that aren't true because we have this purpose. Or, or you know, it, it probably didn't need much of any kind of backroom dealings because everybody was kind of committed to the cause and you just did what you needed to do. But how how open were people in talking about that? You know. I don't think people talked about it at all. We didn't say, hey, we're making up a whole bunch of stuff right. here. Um, but Helen Gurley Brown, as I say, did have a, uh, a guide on how to make up these stories. And um, I, I found it. I kept that guide for 50 years. And when I was writing Subverted, I couldn't find it. What happened to that darn thing? Yeah. Then about, well, before I started writing Sex and the Catholic Feminist, I found it in, in a box in the garage. So I have the exact rules that she gave us on how to make up story. I can give you some of them. Oh, I'd love to hear. Give, a few give of us those. a sample. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, let's see here what she says. Let's the, the, the rule. I called it. Okay, I called it the rule of Helen Gurley Brown. It was like the rule of Saint Benedict. Benedict, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, this was the rule of Helen Gurley Brown. And uh, it's an unholy flip side of the rule of St. Benedict. And if you didn't follow her rule, you wouldn't keep a job at Cosmo for very long. And uh, you certainly wouldn't get paid. So that, so this is the rule of Helen Gurley Brown. These are little, see, they're little teachings. It's like, again, like um, Carl said in his book, it's these little teaching stories that convince people that this is, that this is the way to live. Right. And we pull these little stories. So, okay, so when fabricating stories about ordinary women, whom she called civilians, she called the readers civilians, Helen writes in her rule, try to locate some of the buildings, restaurants, nightclubs, parks, streets, as well as entire case histories in cities other than New York, even if you deliberately have to plant them elsewhere. Mm. Most writers live in New York, 92% of our readers do not. So by making up these stories and planting them in places like Cleveland and Des Moines and Albuquerque, we made this sexual revolution look a lot broader than it actually was. John Chrysostom, the fourth century church father, said the problem with evil is that it is usually disguised as goodness. This was disguised as some a fun way to live. You're just going to be so happy and free, ladies. Go for it. Yeah. But uh, but it was but it was manufactured, and and it was also another thing that was very important. It was written in the tone of big sister talking to little sister, hmm. and we were taught that. So again, this kind of confidential. I'm going to tell you something, kiddo, that you right. maybe mom will never tell you. This kind of um, intimate. Yeah. Um, confidants um, and yeah, yeah right everybody else is doing this and it's only good innocent fun so why are you being such a stick in the mud you know mm-hmm. why don't you just relax and enjoy yeah. and of course that's what 
young girls today are getting that everywhere. Exactly. The Cosmo is no longer, it's just a little piece of the pie now. It's all over the place. Right. Yeah. And, and people today who, who are in their 30s and 40s don't realize how significant Cosmopolitan was in it the was 70s the, and early 80s. Yes. It was the biggest women's magazine in the country. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you another thing. Those editors at Cosmo fanned out and went to this women's magazine, right. that women's magazine, and they, they took that philosophy with them. Right. Why was that philosophy so so wonderful? Was it because the advertisers loved it. It wow. sold products. Okay, so how does propaganda work? Where Edward Bernays, who was the nephew of Sigmund Freud, was the father of public relations. And he wrote a book in the 1920s called Propaganda. Mm. And he told how propaganda worked. Propaganda is, as I say, is not just a bunch of lies. It's it's half truth, limited truth, truth out of context. How do you sell, for example, he said, how do you sell a piano to the middle class? Because the middle class is pretty, that's a pretty high ticket law item. How do you get, this was back in the 20s. How do you sell pianos? You sell it by selling the music room. You have all these beautiful magazines, Architectural Digest. I'm, I'm updating this now for our current, mm-hmm. um, Better Homes and Gardens, all of these magazines with all of these rich people who've got these beautiful music rooms. And once you sell the music room to the, uh, to the audience, to the middle class, They'll just naturally think, ah, I got to have a piano. Yeah. So how do you sell beautiful clothes, uh, all of these cosmetics, uh, singles travel, all the things that are in Cosmopolitan? You send, or, and all these other women's magazines, you sell it by selling the Cosmo lifestyle. Yeah. Once a young woman says, I've got to live this way, she'll just naturally think, ah, I got to have all this other stuff. Right. And so they, so they take these stories and say, you know, this is, this is how your neighbor is living. Right. There, there's, there's, there's no, so, so they remove the stigma right. from it effectively. Yeah. yeah. Which right. is, I mean, that's really how pop culture as a whole works today. Right. Sitcom, soap operas, mm-hmm. they're all extended commercials for yes. promiscuous lifestyles. For right. One, for one to destigmatize yeah. uh, what, what most people typically would feel a measure of shame about once they see it mainstreamed this is the 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 friendly funny sitcom family or whatever yeah Mm -hmm. yeah it's all fiction right will and grace was more significant than any argument relative to to gay marriage for example or sex in the city i think would Mm -hmm. be a an earlier example Mm -hmm. of of, i suppose of the cosmo lifestyle hitting the uh the small screen right so well obviously this is a it's a fascinating discussion, and and as we said before, a, a unique privilege for us to host someone as a guest who was really at the headwaters of of some of this cultural transformation that we saw in the early seventies. Uh, um, uh, what was happening then was nothing short of revolutionary. We're seeing a new brand of revolution now going on with with the gender thing and, and the further advances of the LGBTQ movement. But, but again, uh, what we're seeing now wouldn't have been possible without uh, some of the, uh, the, the cultural revolutions that were going on in the 60s and, and, and 70s. And our guest has been Sue Allen Browder. We want to encourage you uh, to get a hold of her book, Subverted, uh, 
how I helped the sexual revolution hijack the women's movement. Um, it's a fascinating uh, history lesson, really, in what was going on in one of the most important social tools, Cosmopolitan Magazine at that, at that time, by someone who now looks back at uh, that period um, and has critiqued it very thoughtfully, very clearly, and from a Christian perspective. And if you'll go to our website, mortificationofspin.org, uh, you can enter to win a copy of this fascinating history. Um, and while you're there, consider making a donation to the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals so that we can continue to uh, provide this kind of content for you. Um, again, our guest has been Sue Ellen Browder, author of Subverted, as well as a number of other books and a, and a, and a new book as well that you might want to check out. Sue Ellen, would you just give us um, a, a, a real quick overview of, of your newest book? Okay, it's called Sex and the Catholic Feminist. It could be called Sex and the Christian Feminist. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The only reason it's not called the Christian Feminist is it's published by a Catholic <laughs> <laughs> because, because the, uh, um, the early feminists were Methodists, Presbyterians, Quakers, um, all these women that gave us the right to vote. Right. All fascinating story in there on how those women uh, fought. You know, they, they were imprisoned. And, and starved to death and, and all sorts of things. Uh, so there's a fascinating story in there. Uh, Sex and the Christian Feminist is actually is called Sex and the Catholic Feminist, but it's for all of us. Uh, Sue, uh, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been a fascinating conversation. You have said so many things that have made me think, oh man, I'd like to pick your brain for an hour on, <laughs> on that topic. Um, I love talking to people, because I rarely do, um, who, who were there. Um, in the early 70s and, and a part of this. And, it, and it's been a great conversation. We so appreciate your time and uh, talking with us about these things. Thanks for coming on. To our listeners, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, we'll look forward to being with you next time. You don't know me. Don't try to change me in any way. You don't know me. Don't tie me down because I never Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. For more on topics like this, visit mortificationofspin.org, where you can find other articles by Carl and Todd, browse the archive of past episodes, and make a donation. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. So you'd like to do more with your church's website, especially in this day and age when keeping your members and visitors informed is so important. Hi, Eric here from Reformed Media. I've developed Reformation Sites as an easy-to-use website platform to help Reformed churches like yours reach out more effectively. With beautiful mobile-ready designs to choose from, helpful service, 
and useful features such as Sermon Manager, online bulletins, courses, and notifications, your website will be ready the next time a major event happens. It also integrates with other popular services like Sermon Audio, online donations, and live streaming with pricing that fits into any church budget. Take advantage of this month's special offer of 50% off the website setup fee by using the code 2021 to redeem the offer. The first 30 signups may also receive a free WordMark logo designed for their church. Go to ReformationSites.com to get started today or call me, Eric, at 561-900-6886 to explore the possibilities. Reformation Sites, church websites for a modern reformation.